Hello, and welcome to Against Everyone with Connor Habib, episode 200. Friends, we've made it to 200 episodes of this show, so I wanted to do something special. What makes episode 200, a witch 200, different? It's three episodes over two weeks, featuring six conversations, and each conversation has two previous guests of the show in conversation with me and each other. These are people I've loved talking to. Uh, Most of them have been on the show more than once, Um, and now they're in conversation with someone they might never have talked to in their life without this show bringing them together. None of them knew each other before these episodes, and they're all in different disciplines. On these episodes, I'm moving from the two, me and one other guest, to the three, me and two other guests. The idea is a sort of conversational alchemy. What happens when people in different disciplines speak with each other? What sort of new substance arises? So what happens when a theologian talks with a chronicler of transhumanism, or when a New Age scholar talks with an anarchist organizer, or an occult teacher talks with a mystic comedian podcaster? Today's episode features a conversation with me talking with mortician Caitlin Doty and paranormal expert John E. L. Tenney about stigma. When you think about the things that are difficult in your life and that you're working on, and we're learning so much about kind of generational trauma now and things that that stay in your body, like, you know, biologically from previous generations. And so when you're having, when you're doing that kind of work and you're, you're talking to, you're also sort of talking to a ghost when you're talking to like the younger version of your parents or people in your past who have done, you know, so are, are those, is, is having that conversation okay, but talking to your mother when she actually dies is not okay. Like what conversations are we really allowed to have? It's interesting to me that when it comes to insignificant events, like if someone asked you to go and see a movie that you don't like, we will often go and see the movie to placate them or to make them feel happy or to spend a moment with them, right? Like, I'm, <laughs> I hate this movie, but I'll go and see it with you. But then it comes to a point where they say something like, will you pray with me? And you say, like, I can't do that. I don't believe in it. And one is really special to them. And the other is just kind of something they want to do. And we're like, well, that other thing, that's really special. So I refuse to do that. This other thing I don't care about. So I will do it. Like, it's so strange in my brain to think of it in that sense. And it also features me talking with sex therapist Chris Donahue and journalist and critic, particularly critical of the Catholic Church, Kaylin Hogan. And we talk a lot about repression. One of the most interesting things you ever said to me, we never even fully flushed it out, is this idea of like visual consent versus mm-hmm. touch consent. Mm-hmm. And you were always a big proponent of there needing to be a differentiation between the two. Saying that consent to see, I didn't consent to see this, is the same as I didn't consent to be touched in this way. That's what people use against trans people in bathrooms. That's what people use against seeing interracial couples or gay people holding hands or whatever. It's always leveled against marginalized people. And so somehow this has been picked up as a progressive talking point. I want to say here that this podcast is in a tiny, tiny percentage of podcasts that have lasted this long. Um, It's got to be less than like 2%. (laughs) How? Well, one of the ways it's lasted this long is through Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. 
Your contribution is crucial to the show, and it connects you as a listener with these conversations in an extra-dimensional way. When you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support the show with a pledge each month, you become a supporter, someone who is watering and tending to the growth of this show. As this show continues, I'll be doing more of these three guest episodes. In fact, I'll be rotating episodes, a solo episode, an episode with me and a new guest, and an episode with me and two overlapping but very different thinkers or artists or spiritual teachers or activists in conversation with me and each other. On this episode, we've got stigma and repression and death and ghosts and sex and religion all in one place. I have a lot to say about that because I think they're all deeply connected. I woke up to this connection years ago when I was talking with someone else who's been on the show, Greg Newkirk, uh, who also happens to be a friend of John Tenney's. Greg, along with his wife, Dana Newkirk, is uh, a founder of the Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult and a professional paranormal investigator. Greg and Dana travel across the U.S. and internationally investigating claims of hauntings and paranormal activity. A long time ago when we spoke, Greg was about to embark on an investigation of a poltergeist after receiving an urgent and stressful email from a stranger, which he recounted to me. The stranger in question was a man who claimed to be suffering from poltergeist attacks. Objects were being thrown around his house by an invisible force, which was also slamming doors. The tone of the email, and of course Greg kept the writer's name and details, you know, a secret from me or in private confidentiality, but the tone of the email was confiding, it was vulnerable, it was confessional. The man said he didn't know who to go to, but he felt like he could turn to Greg and Dana because of their public profile. And he also wrote that if he told anyone else, he feared he'd be ridiculed or worse, deemed mentally ill. He didn't understand what he was experiencing and he needed help. And as Greg read this email aloud to me, an understanding of what I will call ghost stigma opened up for me. Because this email echoed, sometimes even down to the word, the many, many emails that I've received as someone who writes about, speaks about, and has performed sex publicly as a former porn performer and host of a sex and relationship web series that I did a long time ago, as a sex workers' rights activist, and as someone who's given a lot of lectures on sex, pornography, and sex work around the world. I've received thousands of messages, emails, and comments, and I still do, (laughs) detailing individual struggles with sexual desires, fantasies, anxieties. These messages might detail specific sexual acts someone's afraid to try or desires someone's afraid to express, or that it might be illegal to express. Like, I have gotten tons of messages from uh, gay men in Middle Eastern uh, countries and also just gay Middle Eastern men, not to single them out. Obviously, there's a variety of experiences for (laughs) gay Middle Eastern men and people in uh, the Middle East. But because Connor Habib is, uh, (laughs) you know, I have a Middle Eastern surname, um, and I'm half Syrian, uh, I've had a lot of people reach out to me in those circumstances. The messages, just to go on with this a little bit, they might um, be about a confusing sexual encounter, um, confusing for a variety of reasons. Also, at the 
talks that I've given, um, always afterwards, one or two people would linger until the rest of the crowd had dispersed, and they'd ask me questions that would make them feel vulnerable to ask in front of others, and in fact, still felt vulnerable asking me. I mentioned all this to Greg, and he told me that these were also the sorts of letters that he received all the time. So there's hiddenness, there's fear, there's anxiousness, there's the need to confide. There's the idea that keeping it in will make you feel like you're going crazy. I called that ghost stigma before um, when I was talking about it in reference to the email that Greg shared with me. Ghost stigma, it touches on death, it mirrors sexual stigma, it tangles itself in similar forms of repression, and I don't just mean ghosts, of course. I mean ghost as a broad term, encapsulating stigma around all sorts of supernatural or paranormal or even uh, psi um, experiences that experiencers and investigators have, uh, including those who report and explore encounters with ghosts but also fairies and demons and angels and psychic powers and, you know, unidentifiable entities, occult events. Ghost, for me, as a term, just indicates a disruption in or a revelation about the way we think our realities are ordered um, in the day-to-day, -day, what's normalized. Interestingly, I think, the stigma surrounding having and reporting paranormal encounters finds its negative reflection in the popularity of fictional and dramatized paranormal narratives. It's interesting to me because it's something that I'm also keenly aware about when it comes to pornography. Um, horror films, films that have supernatural content, for instance, are very much like porn in the sense that they're wildly successful art and media forms mirrored darkly by the social stigma of the content. And both mediums are, to differing degrees, of course, subject to ridicule and derision, and sometimes for the same reasons, and even regulation. Obviously, horror doesn't have as much regulation as pornography, but regulation. I'm thinking of uh, The Conjuring 2, for instance. It met with tepid critical reception and wild box office success. And it became the second highest grossing horror film of all time after The Exorcist. And um, I'm bringing that up because I want to talk about the content of it as well. The movie, as far as I'm concerned, is a pretty mediocre effort to dramatize real events. The so-called Enfield Haunting of 1977, which had uh, Peggy Hodgson and her four children claiming to be harassed by a ghost which moved furniture with an invisible force. It threw 11-year-old Janet Hodgson violently around the house and which later possessed her. She said years later, I felt used by a force that nobody understands. The film didn't do anything to really portray the ridicule and scorn heaped on the Hodgsons. Um... It, not a lot, anyway. Maybe a little bit of a mention. At the time uh, of the events, the local media and the debunkers generally preferred to discredit the real-life Hodgsons, often attacking Janet as a precocious child and the investigators as money- and fame-hungry opportunists. The police investigated the house, but then sort of glibly stated that since there was no one to arrest, there was nothing they could do. 
neighbors were dubious of Peggy's reality claims, even though they seemed to be somewhat concerned for her welfare. Something might have been going on. It's just not the something that Peggy claimed, according to anybody else. And since the events, you know, continue to haunt the public imagination, the critical reception continues as well. Um, there's a quote from a media skeptic here. The the poltergeist was nothing more than the antics of a little girl who wanted to cause trouble and who was very, very clever. Um, I bring all this up to say that this horror movie, The Conjuring 2, and movies like it, you know, where there's this content of someone who's not believed in the movie. In fact, horror movies often center around belief, don't they? Um getting someone to believe that the monstrous thing is happening, not being able to believe that the monstrous thing is happening. Um, so The Conjuring 2 and movies like it, they present this riddle for me of the stigma. Um, are horror films and their popularity a sort of compromise solution in a psychoanalytic sense to the cultural stigma around supernatural, paranormal, and occult experiences? Um just like is pornography a compromise solution um, to the fact that we repress our sexual experiences. Perhaps both express something um, and, and continue to be wildly popular and fascinating in this expression because what they're expressing seems unspeakable to us, that we're not able to talk about it. We repress it because it's stigmatized. And then... Of course, the stigmatization jumps to the art form that expresses it. Um, you know, like sex worker communities I've committed all this time and activism to, culture seems willing to portray people who have paranormal experiences um, all the time, to portray them, but not to listen to them or to understand them. You know, sex workers are shown in movies all the time. Um, they're imagined usually the sort of dead hooker narrative or whatever, um, or the poor person who needs to be rescued from trafficking is the new popular way of expressing it. But it's very rare that sex workers are listened to. <laughs> and it is the same way, you know, although again, it, with a different set of circumstances, but there's some overlap there with people who experience paranormal stuff. Whatever someone might think of Peggy Hodgson or um, any of the Hodgson's claims, you know, their experiences were meaningful. Um, you know, they, they were meaningful experiences, whether meaningful for the family or for the investigators or for people who watched the movie. Um, and I think... <laughs> The investigators that I've met since then, you know, they'll often bring this up uh, since that conversation with Greg. The many investigators that I've talked to, they'll bring this up. They'll say, well, there's meaning there. So it should be taken seriously. I think sometimes even that can be a bit of a dodge. I, I hate when academics try that move out. Like, whether or not the phenomena is real is not of our concern. Really, what we're getting to is that there's meaning here and that people believe in it and that it's a cultural uh, thing. I mean, that's all 
I think that is all sort of a cowardly attempt to avoid the confrontation with what's really at stake here, which is the meaningfulness of real experiences and the realness of meaningful experiences that can defy our idea of how we think the world works, of what we allow ourselves to speak about and what we allow in. Um, you know, and I, I think some of that, <laughs> of course, uh, ends up supporting the laws that tie into the stigma, the regulation around the stigma. So like with sex workers, obviously, you know, I could, you probably know some of the laws that tie into the stigma and the regulations and all that sort of stuff wherever you live. But with investigation um, and even claims sometimes uh, of paranormal activity, there's, you know, all sorts of stuff about what's a hoax, what's ripping people off, you know. Um, labor is certainly devalued um, and regulated out of existence as being thought of as valid labor. And the stigma itself just has consequences, even if they're not strictly legal ones. Now I'm going to turn to academia. I'm thinking of this uh, anthropologist and medical doctor. Um, doctor, I'm going to say her name wrong, but it's something like Marja Lisa Hunkosalo, um, who is at the Academy of Finland. And she conducted a four-year study of paranormal experiences. Um, mostly they focused on parapsychological phenomena, such as visions and telepathy. And the main focus of her work was why these experiences are rarely admitted into psychological and psychiatric research. The study was done through received letters and interviews from Finlanders, and she eschewed that question of whether or not the experiences were real. Um, and from this is from that paper, without making truth claims, we ask how their agency and actions, as well as the interactions interaction with them are perceived, experienced, and made meaningful. So, unfortunately, <laughs> the, the, I suppose the joke is on you because that, even that can't protect you. Um, because, so all those people contacted her and shared stigma around the experiences and all that kind of stuff. And uh, all the data she gathered and the published paper, um, she was asked to leave the university. Um, it was, <laughs> she, she lost her job and she said that it seemed likely that her research into the paranormal was the cause of her losing her job. Um, so that stigma, even if you try to dodge it by using what I'm saying, I think is not a good dodge or a worthy one. It's still going to follow you. Um, I find it really interesting how this plays out in Ireland, uh, and maybe it can illuminate some of the other stuff uh, that I've been talking about. So, like in Ireland, um, there there's a politician who brought up fairies and was just sort of completely laughed at when he brought up fairies affecting the road and all that, and people highly disliked him. He was just laughed at in Dublin, but he's you know, elected again and again where he's from, which is, uh, you know, a more rural environment. Um, there's the 1999 story in Ireland here of the NRA. The NRA here is the National Roads Authority and was developing a 90 uh, million euro road project in County Clare 
and the routes were met with resistance from locals uh, on the grounds that the road would destroy a fairy meeting ground and that the destruction would evoke revenge by spiritual beings. And a lot of people also were like, news of the weird, how silly, how stupid. Uh, interestingly, the way the dance played out here in Ireland was that the NRA did change its mapping to avoid the spot. Um, but it doesn't always sort of play out that way. And, and I think it's really interesting to see how these stigmas and repressions and what we speak about, what we laugh about, plays out. Like, for instance, there's a house when I first moved here that's not far away from where I live that the owners couldn't sell because it was said to be haunted. Um, so that stigma can really affect people's material conditions. Um, like, in fact, there's a, a term in real estate for houses <laughs> that are said to be haunted or someone was killed in or whatever, and that's stigmatized property. It's the real estate term for property that was the site of an unpleasant experience. Now, you don't always have to disclose uh, that something happened or there's a haunting or whatever in a house when you're trying to sell it. But that's also interesting, isn't it? What things do people want to say and what do they not want to say? The great anthropologist, the great late anthropologist, Marshall Sons, once said, the people we call Western have been haunted by the specter of their own inner being. I love that because I think that speaks to everything I've been saying here. The stigma and repression that we carry around, whether it's about sex or death or ghosts, is in itself a sort of poltergeist, isn't it? In some ways, just as we carry our own death around inside of us, and every move we make is a move towards our death, and we have this skeleton within us. In some ways, our belief system is also a ghost, and it's a ghost that we're afraid of. <laughs> we're afraid to approach or to see. All right, I am done talking now and introducing this set of episodes. Um, each uh, conversation is about an hour long. So wherever the first conversation starts, if you want to jump to the next one or find your place again, because I know these are long episodes, you just find uh, an hour from the beginning of that one <laughs> and uh, you jump in. So uh, here we go. My conversations about stigma and repression with Caitlin Doty, John E.L. Tenney, Chris Donahue, and Kaylin Hogan on Against Everyone with Connor Beeb 200, part one. Thanks for helping me get here, everybody. Hello, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Beeb. Hello, Caitlin Doty and John E.L. Tenney. Hello, Connor. <laughs> Hello, Connor. Um, I'm so excited to have you both on. Um, I want to start by talking about um, normalization and stigma, um, because it's something that I think <laughs> it's something that you both kind of dance with and are tangled up in at the same time um the 
you know, well, with, with Caitlin's, with, with Caitlin's discipline, it's kind of unavoidable um, to say like, you know, this is something that happens to everybody, but people have a difficulty talking about it. But I still think like with John, with a lot of what you investigate, research, write about that, it's all stuff that happens to tons of people, but we have a difficult time talking about. So I want to start there. Like why the difficulty, how does that affect people's uh, lives when you're talking to them and, and maybe just talking about that stigma around death and also these strange encounters or anomalies. And um, I realize that's a really big <laughs> topic to start with, but let's see what happens. Well, I think I see this in all of our work and Connor, I would, would add this to your um, time with sex as well. That's what I call your former career, your time, time with, with sex, sex. Connor <laughs> Habib time with sex, but it's, I mean, that's what I would argue. It's sort of like sexuality in that, you want to normalize it to the point that people can enjoy it, but not normalize it so much that it's not special or exciting Mm. in some way. And I do think that I try and do that with death in the sense that it's a misconception to be like, I just want to normalize it. So everyone is just completely comfortable with death. First of all, impossible. There's, there's absolutely no way. And I don't trust any person who's like, you know what? I'm just totally chill with death. I just don't even think about it. Doesn't even bother me. Doesn't enter my frame of mind. It's like, yeah, well, you have not been standing at the bottom of the the existential mountain and facing your absolute worst fear of your own annihilation, my good friend. So (laughs) not only is it not possible to completely remove stigma, I don't think it's actually a good idea because part of what we are missing in the way that we take care of our dead is that little bit of of salacious excitement of being the one to be present, not only at the death when the person transitions, but also taking care of their dead body. If you are in that, you know, it's not supposed to be like, oh, I might as well be watching the Buffalo Bills game, you know, while my mother is dead in the room. It's supposed to be this powerful, transformative, engaged thing. So you want to normalize and take away the stigma, but you don't simultaneously want to just make it humdrum. You want to keep that kind of amazing um, intensity and sense of difference and sense of ritual that is what makes death and the fact that we're all going to die exciting. Yeah, I I agree talking about our weird experiences that many people seem to have. Being able to talk about it openly with other people, I feel, is really important because then we can exchange our personal folklore with each other. But when we over-normalize it, then they just become stories and they lose the kind of magic that they carry with them. Everybody starts talking about their abduction by aliens or the the spells that they crafted on witchcraft and you see the what happens when it over normalizes right like all of a sudden it just becomes something that everyone does and it loses its special individualistic quality because i think a lot of the things that happen are meant to be individualistic and transformative for us and so yes talk about it with people but also know that it has a magic it needs to retain. When I do lectures, people will suggest or request some of my weirder stories. And I tell them like, it's not, those aren't stories that I tell at every lecture. I tell them two groups of people that I feel need to hear them. 
or if I feel I need to tell it at a time. I don't, when I do my lectures, anybody that's ever seen them, I don't do them with PowerPoint presentations. Like I'm watching the crowd and I'm talking to the people who are there and I've talked to the people who have showed up early because I'm trying to understand for myself what they need to hear and what I need to hear from them. And in that way, I can make it normal without making it just some kind of trite pat lecture that every single person hears. It's kind of a, a, you know, the original inhabitants of North America, with their storytelling, passing down their tradition. The stories were never told exactly the same. It was up to the storyteller to determine where they were in their point of life and then shape the story or the folklore around the teller's experience. That's constantly a question I get in interviews. It's just, what's the craziest thing you've seen (laughs) as a funeral director? Like, just spit it. And I'm like, well, also, you know, when you make it, when you frame it as like the craziest thing you've seen, that also loses some of its its magic, too, as just something that could happen to any of us on any. I mean, not if you're not working as a funeral director, (laughs) you're probably not going to, you know, have the maggots come spilling out of the body. But it it does, it does sort of. (laughs) and flops. Yeah. it, It does kind of demean that, that, that sense of the story. As yeah, a story I mean, that you adjust to who you're speaking to. I think I think that right. So like there's always this tension between like how do we how do we kind of I don't even know if smooth things out is the right term, but you see what I'm saying when I say that. But it's without without diminishing the individualized intensity. And then I also find like like when it comes to well, yeah, this can equally be applied to death, but when it comes to paranormal stuff or magic or whatever, you know, find like when people um, have some sort of new agey or uh, spell thing or whatever work, you know, they're like, holy shit, it worked, you know? <laughs> and I'm always like, well, yeah, like, didn't you think that this was how the universe worked? So um, I can, I've, I'll sometimes find people throwing themselves back into that sense of novelty in a way that actually denies them the ability to enter into a different view of the world, which would require actually understanding just the, or, or, or immersing or connecting to the reality that they <laughs> you know, propose to be connecting to, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think the, when Caitlin was talking was interesting because it was triggering my thoughts about death and and how those things are normalized and how sometimes so like I'm speaking you speaking to both of you from the room my mother died in when she died a year and a half ago so she lived with me for the last three years of her life and I was an in-home caregiver and when I talk to people about my mother dying they're like oh my god how can you be in the room where your mother died And I'm like, how could my mother have died anywhere other than a place surrounded by people who love her, (laughs) right? And then people don't want to talk about, like, what was the experience like? They they have inside of themselves their ideas and their kind of individualistic notions of, like, the terror and the fear of death. When, when you face it, you realize like, no, this is something we do need to talk about. It, it does hold a very special quality to me. Like it's super special that I can be in this room and that I was in this room when that, when that, when her death happened and I could be with her, that's a gift that not very many people get. 
You know, most people lose their loved ones in a hospital room and they're away or they get the phone call and then they rush there and it's already too late. And so like I have a story, but then sometimes when the story is too intense or too personal, like people don't want to hear it. Mm. Well, when I when I hear stories like that, maybe this is sort of gauche, but my response is always amazing congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for I'm sure. so I'm so grateful for you that you got that opportunity. And Connor and I have this conversation all the time because I'm not um I don't have as deep a connection with the spiritual world as he does yet perhaps. I think he's still <laughs> he's still he's still like reeling me in, but despite that, I would argue and have argued from the beginning that being able to be there when someone dies and being able to sit there with the dead body, like what greater access to something beyond yourself could there be? Like what a more profound human experience that dances between the living and the dead can there be than actually, and and I would be interested in hearing what you have to say about this, thinking about the paranormal, but you know, is there, it seems to me that the there's, yeah, there could be great, experiences within the paranormal, but also just being there with the physical corpse. Like it's not something that, you know, potentially we don't know what's happening. No, we know what's happening. There was someone in there and now they're not anymore. And the reckoning that each individual has to do with that to me seems like the the best boundary you can dance between life and death. For sure. And for those people who don't know, like I get in a lot of arguments with people in the paranormal community because I tell people the most difficult thing that I do as a researcher is I have to walk that line between like I don't believe anything and I kind of believe everything and walking that line is the most difficult part of my journey because if I disbelieve everything all my data skews in that direction if I believe in everything all my data skews in that direction so I have to walk this line of like I don't know what the fuck is going on (laughs) I don't think anybody does I think if anything, paranormal phenomena is a mechanism for which we can use to talk to each other about our deep experiences with life and death. And, you know, people will say, well, you're as a paranormalist, as someone who studies ghosts, you know, when your mother passed, did you feel anything? No, I felt a of course, of course I did. I (laughs) I don't know if it was psychic or whatever, but I mean I lost this woman who raised me from birth, you know, even my father and I had this argument because my dad, they'd been married for 55 years. And my dad's like, you know, I knew her longer than you. And I kept yelling at him. Like I only knew her my whole life. Like you had 16 or 17 years of life without her. I didn't have any years of life without her. And so this, then that argument begins over whose death experience was more (laughs) special. Right. But what, but what a juicy argument. Right. Like what a, you know, that's like simultaneously a a hard story to hear. And I'm sure it was a difficult argument, but also like that sort of wisdom that you come to your own like practice and advocacy with of just, I don't know what the fuck is going on. And that's the beginning of wisdom. Right. You know, the having that attitude is the only way that you can get to those kind of meaty, open conversations. You know, most people, most family members can't even have the conversation about like, do you think mom wanted to be cremated? I don't know. We never asked her, you know, <laughs> forgetting like I was made from the cells within my mother. And thus I have a different relationship. <laughs> like that kind of, that kind of conversation can only happen when you are, when you are open to those sort of questions. 
Yeah. <clears throat> it's funny. Cause you're making me think of um, it. <laughs> so when my mom died, um, I think maybe you both know this, but when my mom died, she, or actually just before she died, I was, she was in hospice care in my home um, or the family home. And I was in where my bedroom was up above the room that she was in her sort of hospital style bed in. And um, I kind of woke up from a nap and I looked over and she was standing there like fully composed. I mean, my mom weighed like 60 pounds or something like that when she died, you know, and um, she was just sort of standing there fully composed. And she looked at me and I said something to her. She said something to me and then she disappeared. And my, my stepfather called me downstairs. He said, Hey, it's time. And I went downstairs and then she died. And um, so, but I told someone about that and um, this, I promise that this isn't like a, anything being leveled against you, Caitlin, but this person was a member of the Ernest Becker foundation. And so he was very like, he was like, Oh yeah, well uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You re- you inserted that memory, you know? Um, and I just was like, fuck you, man. <laughs> like what, what a thing to say to me that I had inserted the memory. And the reason why I'm bringing all that up, um, is like, there's a way in which, um, I think just uh, when I'm talking about normalizing and you guys are just both talking about the dangers of normalizing really to some extent, any kind of worldview, even if it's the one we believe in and we accept, I mean, I know like the Ernest Becker foundation is and Ernest Becker has had so much meaning in your life, Caitlin, but you wouldn't say that to somebody. Like I, you wouldn't go there with it because it's too that that's too determining of the other person's experience. So there's, there's a kind of normalizing, but we all recognize that normalizing comes from a specific lens and the way we do it comes from a specific lens and how we, we, and then there's the other kind, which is like, it's normal for us all to have our individuated experience of this thing, which is sort of different. Well, that's what I was going to say is that it goes both ways in the sense of, you know, when my, when my, after my grandfather died, my grandmother fell down, hit her head, had a subdural hematoma, and that caused dementia. And she saw my grandfather all the time, mm-hmm. you know, saw him all the time. And you saw your mother before she died. And you could also normalize that in the either in the other direction and say they were seeing ghosts, mm. you know, and that's to me, that doesn't explain it either. You know what I mean? No, nor I do not see it as like a trick of your memory, nor do I see it as like the ghost of my grandfather came to my grandmother and put his hand on her hand. You know, neither of those seems entirely right to me. And so I have no choice but to remain open. Mm. Well, and for me, too, I think it's interesting because I will do these events and lectures and conferences. And because I've researched and investigated this stuff for so long people will come to me looking for an answer about something of a loved one who's passed away and what i find interesting i had a gentleman in virginia about two years ago kind of get me off to the side when i was smoking a cigarette and and he had a story he had lived with his mother his whole life never had a father they lived together she took care of him he was 29 she had just died a few months before and he was waiting for her to send a message and he asked me like when is my mother going to come and like 
reconcile this situation. She has left me. I am left without her for the first time in my life. When is she going to give me a message? And there are a lot of, I'm assuming, a lot of paranormalists and ghost hunters who would have been like, oh, just, it's it's coming. You look for a flower and look for a dragonfly, look for a feather on the ground. Like, that's a way to kind of resolve his situation. But the way that I think about things, or try to at least, is I told him, like, the, the thing that popped into my head was, she took care of you your whole life. Maybe she knows what's best for you and you don't need a message. Maybe she's done taking care of you. Maybe this is now your time to stand on your own two feet. Maybe that's the message. Like just to move forward without her because you have to. And maybe your mother knowing you best knows that that's what you need to do right now. So no message is the message. Something that does really happen in and it's not necessarily Ernest Becker people, although I'm <laughs> that that person that you talk to sounds like someone I might know. But <laughs> I think there is this sort of as we move into a more secular society, just statistically, we lose a lot of the long-term relationships with the dead that almost every culture has had from time immemorial. You have these long-standing rituals that you do and check-ins that you do and graves that you visit and, you know, flowers that represent something and, and seeing things that represent something and looking for those signs and just having a sort of long-term conversation with someone who has died. And in some ways, talking about stigma, I think that for people who are very secular, some of the cultural emphasis on the paranormal and the side of the paranormal that you don't probably particularly like very much, which is like, you know, ghost hunters extreme. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That kind of, that kind of. I mean, it's fun. (laughs) No, and and you know, and you know what, it, it is fun. And again, this is the conversation of like, how do you keep it salacious and interesting and relevant Mm -hmm. while also normalizing it? But does the focus on that, because we don't have a lot of great religious, ritualistic, spiritual practice in daily life, a lot of us, Mm. you, I think you get into this place as a grieving person where you're like, I can't do these rituals. I can't look for signs. I can't have a continued conversation, like literal conversation with my dead loved one, Mm -hmm. because I don't believe in that stuff. So I wonder that's an, that's interesting. I wonder I have friends, obviously, who are atheists and large S skeptics and just don't believe in anything. And one of the things that I often wonder is, is there ever a moment where, like, they want to have a discernible conversation inside of their head with someone and they stop themselves from yes. doing it? Yes, I think so. <laughs> that seems that seems really sad to me. It is. Absolutely. I think I think that's where we kind of we kind of meet up and have a have a not that I think we agree on a lot of things actually, but I think that that's probably one of the main places that we meet up with which is sort of what is helpful yeah. to you. Mm-hmm. Right? Because like denying, you know, being such of an atheist that you deny yourself any relationship with anything outside of the physical world sitting right in front of you, talking back to you, you know, can you, can you not talk to your dad while he's in a coma? Right. You know, mm-hmm. is the moment that he takes his last breath, is that relationship 
completely severed and you don't get a relationship? Are you allowed to still talk? Are you allowed to still do rituals? And if so, why not? And even away from death, I have to wonder sometimes with people who don't believe in any greater, larger ideas or or even consider them like when a a capital a atheist hardcore non-believer in everything when they're just when they're talking to their children like i'm sure that they often say to their children i love you like i assume that that's a thing that atheists would say to their children (laughs) i don't know about atheists (laughs) who can say but but I don't think that they would like look down and maybe they do again. I don't, that's not my kind of built in community, but like, I can't imagine that they would bend down in front of their three-year-old or five-year-old and say like, you know, the serotonin and dopamine drops that are occurring in my brain right now are creating the illusion of love that I feel for you and then give them a hug. Like, it doesn't seem like that's like, and then if you don't do that, are you, are they being disingenuous? Mm Mm-hmm. You feel like Elon Musk and Grimes did that with their like kid, you know? One hundred percent. What like Elon numbered, Musk and Grimes do with their kid? <laughs> the numbered child, Oof. like the child named after a license plate. But I think like the, the no no disrespect to that kid, but I think it is it's interesting because when you guys were talking, I was thinking there's these sort of exploitative outer versions of both death and the paranormal. They're kind of easy to name, right? Like if we look at like. I mean, I was going to say faces of death, but that's so dated now. It's just the internet, like it's just like <laughs> shitty content on the internet or like there are certain kinds of um, like, if we accept paranormal phenomena as real, like then certain kinds of seances, certain kinds of ghost busting, like, you know, machismo shows, that kind of stuff that I think. Um, are also very outwardly exploited, but in what ways do we kind of exploit it inwardly? What, what, in what ways do we make this kind of like bad move, this sort of torturous inner gesture? And I think that that is one where it's like, I'm not even going to allow myself to have the conversation, but not because not even because it hurts, which is very strange. Because I can imagine myself not wanting to think of someone who broke up with me because it would hurt too much. And I'm like, I just need to move on and kind of CBT my way out of this, you know? But I think that there's probably like, well, this is foolish. I I definitely think in British, the British psyche, there's got to be a lot of people that, that do that. And I'm also even thinking of like Stephen Dedalus and in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and Ulysses, like where the whole thing is like his mom asks him to basically pray with her on her deathbed. He's like, I don't believe in God, you know, and he won't do it with her. Like even as a kind of, you know, in that, in that sense, there's also that, like I have too much integrity to ever even give over this moment of comforting belief to someone else. And so that's a way of doing it as well, perhaps, you know, it's really strange to think of that we can do it we can identify it so readily when it's outside of us, but then there's this way of something inside that's just as, just as insidious or just as bad in a way. When you think about the things that are difficult in your life and that you're working on, and we're learning so much about kind of generational trauma now and things that, that stay in your body, like, you know, biologically from previous generations. And so 
when you're having, when you're doing that kind of work and you're, you're talking to, you're also sort of talking to a ghost when you're talking to like the younger version of your parents or people in your past who have done, you know, so are, are those, is, is having that conversation okay, but talking to your mother when she actually dies is not okay. Like what conversations are we really allowed to have? Yeah. And, and interesting, like Connor, when you were saying, I, I was thinking, you know, when it comes to these, maybe it's because they are insignificant moments or seem to be, I mean, I kind of try to treat, I'm of that mindset of like, this is the only chance I get on this planet. Let's try and make as much of every moment as possible. Like even I argued back in the day when everybody was doing the dead poet society carpe diem, like, you know, seize the day. Like one of my mentors was always like, that's actually wrong. It should be momentum. It should be seize the moment, not the day. Don't wait for the whole day. Like do it now. But it's interesting to me that when it comes to insignificant events, like if someone asked you to go and see a movie that you don't like, we will often go and see the movie to placate them or to make them feel happy or to spend a moment with them. Right. Like I'm, I I hate this movie, but I'll go and see it with you. But then it comes to a point where they say something like, will you pray with me? And you say like, I can't do that. I don't believe in it. And one is really special to them. And the other is just kind of something they want to do. And we're like, well, that other thing that's really special. So I refuse to do that. This other thing I don't care about. So I will do it. Like, it's so strange in my brain to think of it in that sense. Uh (laughs) Yeah. And right. It should almost, I wouldn't say it should always be the reverse, but it's like in some ways it almost be the reverse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering now, like just sort of bringing it back to stigma, like, do we think that maybe these stigmas are interlocking? Like what, what is it that, what is it that brings the silence and the stigma around these things? Like, why has this, why has this all happened? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's undeniable that people have had paranormal experiences. It's undeniable that people die and experience death. And I guess for my part, it's undeniable that we want to fuck. I mean, not the three of us necessarily, but like that we all want to fuck. <laughs> undeniable. <And> that, <laughs> this just takes a really crazy turn. Chemistry um, is palpable across the Zoom. <laughs> I'm not even posting this episode, guys. Um, this is just for us. But no, I mean, and so, you know, but what is the like what do you think is the sort of order of the day is it related are these stigmas related do they sort of filter through the same kind of mechanisms and not to talk about some sort of conspiracy but rather like what are the kinds of machinations and and systems and structures in place and do they interlock well this is something i was thinking about when you were talking earlier and i want to ask john about this but in the funeral industry, taking care of the dead really moved from a female-centered, home-centered practice to a thing that you pay men for. You pay a professional class of men for. And it's not exactly the same, and it may be completely reductive to make a comparison, but it does seem like with relationship with the paranormal, we have moved from, at least in the West, from kind of the spiritualist women of that same period to now when you think about ghost hunters, I think about almost exclusively men, at least the people who are sort of public facing in their relationship with the paranormal. And I wonder what, you know, you would say about that kind of public transition between who holds 
the the power and holds the space around spiritual relationship in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a kind of I think it's it's a, it's a maelstrom that continues to happen. If you look back, I mean, if you start back with like original religious belief systems are all female centric, right? Like it's all the mother goddess. And then it slowly moves into a male dominated religious system. Then you start having magic practitioners, which are all women. And then that gets taken away and that's turned into a kind of male ordered fraternal organization. And then you have the recapturing, like it's this constant flow, the recapturing of female spirituality through spiritualism, where all of a sudden women were channeling men so people would listen to women again, right? Like a, a woman had no voice in the community, but now she's channeling uh, Edgar Allan Poe. So people will listen to what she's saying and she can write Poe's poems. And then the same thing happens with ghost hunting. Uh, mostly female researchers collecting and compiling stories of ghost stories and then paranormal reality TV hits and it's all men, it's all bros and t-shirts screaming at ghosts. And, I really feel that there is this 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 change that seems to happen and I'm I'm seeing it again right now like the 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 feminine aspect is starting to reclaim it you're seeing more female ghost hunters you're seeing more fem- female paranormal researchers there's more books being written and published by um women than there are by, by men like it's 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 falling apart again so I'm just waiting to see how long it takes for masculinity to reclaim it once more. It's just this ebb and flow. And it's disturbing to me because I do recognize the historical past, which is it starts with the feminine aspect of spirituality. You know, I think people miss the fact, again, when I think about religion overall and spiritual practices, it's always confused me as a non-religious person. I was raised without any religion whatsoever, but it's always been super interesting to me that like in Catholicism, you have the mother of God, Mary, the mother of God, and that people forget that like, then people talk about how God is the most important. And in my brain, I've always been like, but he has a mom. Like, isn't she the most important? The The person who birthed God, isn't that person more important than the person she birthed? And in so many, in so many places around the world, you have people, you know, there's cults around Mary and people mm-hmm. who are like, well, Mary is the one who gets everything done, obviously. Right. So, <laughs> you know, we all the logistics about my love, my life, my money, my health, everything. We're going to go through Mary because that's, you know, she's the one who can actually get that done. God is kind of just, you know, he's busy. He's doing his thing, but you know, it's, yeah, I think that's really, really fascinating for me to hear because it's something very similar is happening in the funeral industry with this reclamation of um, sort of not only, you know, being doulas, like changing the death worker as someone who comes and is much more intimate with you, usually a woman or, or female identified and the idea of the green burial space. So the idea of mother earth being where your body goes, as opposed to this intense, you know, preserved body, pickled body in a casket underground in a bunker. And I do, I do think there is some aspect to it. I suspect of women, women's access to spirituality and death and the afterlife being a little less 
easy to capitalize monetarily on and a little harder to control. Mm. And when the cycles happen, when men come in, it's sort of like, oh, we see a lot of financial opportunity and a lot of control opportunity that you may have just been missing. So we'll just come in here and we will set this up right now. And here we are now. Now we're culture. Right. You know, and it just becomes culture. And so to your original question, Connor, like, how does this, how do we develop these stigmas? I think that those stigmas are are more, are more likely to develop in the periods where sort of capitalism and maleness dominates the narrative. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, like, as you're both talking, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe... I, I could find some framework here for like, it's actually anyone who tries to sort of heal this um, shattering that's happened between um, men and women and who holds power and power dynamics. It's like, which often ends up being women who are doing that healing work. So like we can start with like, you know, people who have some sort of mystical leaning like Ida Craddock, who was like married to an angel and taught women like sexual self-pleasure. And then this guy, Anthony Comstock, who started the Comstock of Sending Laws, like hounded her basically to suicide, right? Or or um or Mary Baker Eddy, who created Christian science medicine in a response to women being tortured basically by medical doctors. Um, and then her being sort of demonized by the medical establishment for, oh, she's just teaching, you know, bullshit pseudoscience, but actually she was ended up saving people's lives because of the kinds of treatments that women were receiving at the time. But then I, I'm also thinking about people like Freud, who, you know, um, is often demonized for being a misogynist, but psychoanalysis is like the one, you know, woman dominated field with the big names being mostly women who are in fact saying lots of things about um, how women cope with a kind of phallocentric world. Or I'm thinking about Rudolf Steiner, who, you know, worked with women constantly and had this, you know, woman Ida, uh, Ada Wegman, who is like his sort of right hand woman who developed anthroposophy with him. And I'm just thinking about all the ways in which these people were actually healing this rift that it could go one way or the other. It could be um, because of prejudices that men have, and usually it was, or it could be prejudices that people had just about there being this vast, intense difference in the first place. And so, you know, the people that are trying to preserve this gender binary where the distinction, you know, uh, become, becomes a sort of animosity or these, or, or develops enemies, you know, um, I think that that's, and I realize I'm saying in, in some ways a very basic sort of feminist principle, but I do think um, it's actually the kind of attempt to heal it that's so threatening and that develops the stigmas, not necessarily the attempt to just sort of give power to give the power that men have to women or give the power that, but rather that people want that commonwealth of, of strength and ingenuity and creativity. And it is that that is threatening. And it doesn't, in some ways, it doesn't matter who does it. It's anybody that tries to do that is like a massive threat and the stigma can arise out of it in the sense of it could be sexual pleasure. It could be, you know, magic as medicine, it could be, um, 
yeah, it could be, you know, how people deal with their unconscious. It could be uh, spiritual or occult pathways. It actually doesn't matter. Is that anyone who's trying to do the real healing work uh, is a huge threat. And so the stigma arises out of that because it erodes the structures of power in general, in general. Yeah. There's a woman that I know named Monica Torres, who's an absolutely incredible restorative embalmer. So when someone has died and they've been, you know, they've been decomposing in a barn for 10 days, she can take them and through her artistry, completely restore them. Mm. And when she was starting to do this work, you know, she was a, a young Latina woman and the men who really ran this kind of specialized restorative art practice in the funeral industry in the United States. At first, my understanding is that they were very welcoming of her. They loved the idea of this like beautiful young woman who wanted to do the same work they did. Hmm. And then when she started to not only become a public presence, when people started to listen to her specifically, hmm. when she started to work with me and say things like, not everybody wants to be embalmed. A lot of our future is going to be in unembalmed viewings. You know, what I do is kind of a specialty for when the body is really destroyed, but not everybody needs to be embalmed. And she just became an important voice mm. in in public, they started to turn on her mm-hmm. big time because of exactly what you're saying. It's not, it's not they they liked, it's not that they didn't want women in there. It's like far too reductive to be like men don't want women mm-hmm. in their field. They like, they like their token women. Men love a token mm. woman, especially a beautiful young token woman. Oh my God, they they love it. But it's when she starts to become more influential and start to say things that they don't like and starts to take away the power of their own message that mm-hmm. she becomes such a threat where she wasn't yeah. before. Yeah. And I think one of the hopes I had when I said earlier, like I'm waiting for this re-rise of the feminine and then to once again be taken over by the masculine. I think the, the thing that really, the hope that, the paranormal, supernatural, the occult communities that resides somewhere in my heart is there is a growing group of people in that that community, in those communities, who are starting to recognize that if we are not just our physical bodies, if we are something greater than our physical bodies, then we truly do inhabit all of the spaces that we are not just men or just women you know if we are these ethereal spirits without corporeal form that exist in some other dimension like i am just inhabiting a shell which many people now see as masculine or a man Mm -hmm. but my hope with the paranormal community is you start to see the rise of people who are willing to look at someone who is recognized as female now in this reality but know that she's not and see a male recognized in this community but know he's not and it's that's my hope my hope is that like if the paranormal and the supernatural does anything it starts to help break down these binary situations of 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 male and female so that you can have people just in good faith like questioning reality and no one's worried about if it was a man or a woman who said it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it, it, it's, 
I love that. And also I already know people who are like, oh, well, you were born a man, but you want to be a woman. Well, it's reincarnation. Just wait until the next go. You know, like I've actually heard people say that already. <laughs> yeah. Like we're deeply like a culty people. They're like, well, yeah, like trans and like there are, there's certain like witches that are like women only witch spaces, like that kind of stuff. And they say stuff like that. Are too. they worfs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so they <laughs> well actually yeah um they wouldn't be witch, witch exclusionary so i don't so it'd be like trues um but yeah <laughs> but i but i think like it it is interesting the way you guys are both talking about because i'm just thinking about how you know there's this thing that it still happens but it happened a lot in like the 80s especially where people are like um you know I like, I love Fritjof Capra, but like the Tao of physics, like kind of move, or it was like, finally, like science explains the ancient wisdom of the Tao or, you know, whatever it was where spiritual moves got kind of <clears throat> absorbed into science and therefore made acceptable. And you see this all the time. Like there's still these like sciencey stories about, well, here we can finally explain with neuroscience why this happens or why this happens. But like, the stuff that's really still kind of threatening to the structure is when you have spirituality move into science in a way that actually creates an interchange with science that begins to change how people think about science. Like, so in the same way that you would have, you know, a conception of death that really began to change how people live, that becomes much more threatening than just sort of, the token women or the token paranormal experience or the token, you know, whatever. And that's also why, like, you know, of course, like what, you know, trans women, especially being threatening to certain, like, let's say British feminist identities of like what a woman is like, that's why it becomes so threatening. But like, this is actually what we want when we start healing this rift that the set of oppositions, it no longer becomes possible in the same way because the set is revealed to be sort of false and, and starts eroding itself. And we have to create a new kind of, you know, hole or, or, or lens to see through. Yeah. And that's when the, that's when the baby cries, right? Like mm-hmm. one of the things my mother used to say was, you know, before you put a baby to sleep is, is when it kicks and screams the most because it knows it's going to sleep, right? And it doesn't want to. And so when you look at society today, like it just seems like the baby is crying, right? Because it knows it's going to sleep and it doesn't want to, but it's, it's going to, no matter what that's happens, so it's hopeful. going to be put, it's going to be put down, it's going to be put down in bed and it's going to go to sleep. <laughs> oh my God. Every time I'm on Twitter now, I'm just going to be like, the baby's crying. The baby's crying. It's about to go to sleep. It's about to go to sleep. Night, night, baby. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, but I mean, that actually is not only is that a helpful metaphor in general, but I think it's helpful because we can love the baby and not say it and not blame the baby. Mm. Yeah. You know, we can be like, it's not, you know, you don't, you're not going to look at a baby and be like, fucking baby is at fault for everything. Right. You're like, it's a baby. It's just a baby. Yeah. I get in <laughs> trouble sometimes on Twitter because I talk about how stupid babies are. <laughs> they, are, they are they're just simple they're just they're just learning they don't they, know yeah but somebody our, blocked me because i said that he, he said he was very funny and he said uh my three-year-old thinks i'm funny and i said well your three-year-old is very dumb and then he blocked me <laughs> yeah. it's just your a fact three-year-old does not have just a, a prefrontal it's just, cortex. just a fact <laughs> yeah your your three-year-old also thinks poop on his hand is fun right um 
Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's a really kind of lovely way to look at it because it's, it's just society right now really is a baby. That's just so upset for good reason, but can't quite get itself out of it's being a three-year-old. Yeah. And I feel like we just need to sing it to sleep, right? Yeah. Just sing it to sleep and just put it in the little bassinet. (laughs) So I I think the last thing I want to ask is a time question. Cause I was just thinking about how, you know, if you have an idea of ghosts or reincarnation or the paranormals of weirds, you might have a different time scale than someone who's focusing on, on death or maybe not. I don't know. So, you know, if, if I'm sort of thinking in terms of my own death or the death of other human beings all the time, but not sort of moving into a place of eternality or reappearance, reemergence, sort of spectral occurrences, reincarnation, different time cycles. I just might feel differently about time in the everyday. And I'm wondering, I don't know if that's true or not, I, but since you two are here together, I thought maybe I'd ask about that. Well, I'll, I don't know if Caitlin knows this, but so when I was 18, I had a heart attack and flatlined and they got me back. So I have what most people call a near-death experience. I just call it a death experience because my heart stopped and my brain, you know, I was close. It's three and a half minutes. So you get close to, you know, lack of oxygen for the brain. But what's interesting to me is when I think about my experience, you know, death is, I was always raised death is this finality, right? And so for me, it wasn't. So for me, this is after forever. Uh, so time really doesn't make sense in my head anymore in the sense that forever doesn't end. And I was already in forever and now I'm after it. Like I'm talking to you in the after forever. If that yeah. makes any Pofo, sense. if you will. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. But the, the thing is, I think that Caitlin and I might agree on this. Uh, you can speak to it, Caitlin, but like, whether or not I believe in ghosts or spirits, like I am fairly sure that I am alive and existing right now. And so this is for my physicality and for my corporeal body. Like this is the most important time for me. As far as I know, is this moment now, because it may end at any second. Like I'm not even guaranteed the ending of this sentence. Okay. I'm glad I made it. But like, like, that's the way I think that people should live, whether they believe in spirituality or not. Like this, this is the moment that you're having. And I don't know even how long this moment lasts. That's interesting. Cause about a year ago, I think I would have said the exact same thing. And now I'm, I'm shifting a little bit in the sense that I always believed pretty close to that in the sense that there was this list that was in the journal of abnormal psychology of the reasons that people fear death that I've always kind of used just as a helpful kind of thing to, to look at. And I was always like, I'm a number two. Why do I fear death? Because my plans and projects will come to an end. And that's like specifically (laughs) my thing. Like I am doing this and it's so ironic that I want people to accept death and engage death so badly that I have to fear death myself because I'm not going to get it all done. And I've reached a certain point in my life now, especially as we move through the pandemic where I'm just like, I'm kind of tired and I've been beating this drum for so long and I want to not be as focused on that. And so does having some kind of spiritual practice or does considering that there could be 
something else beyond this? Would that actually potentially help me not be so obsessed with what I need to achieve and accomplish right Mm -hmm. here and now? You know, is it possible that that thinking of my life as not just like the spotlights on me now, baby, like this is my moment, I'm in the moment and I got to be working, you know, is there a way to use these other tools to cool that down a little bit? Because for some people, I think they absolutely need a ton more of that in their lives. They need a ton more of a sense of you only get one life and you're you're being driven in everything you do, positive and negative, by the specter of death. Mm. But are there some people, like perhaps me, who don't need to be so aware of that that they live so in the moment and work so hard that they create a sense of guilt around that and so i'm I, while i essentially still exactly agree with you i think that now i'm flipping my head a little more to these things beyond and these things other to to show a different path for myself yeah i mean i, I it's so interesting i mean both these both these comments on this are so fascinating to me because i was thinking caitlin about like well if someone is like kind of as you said everybody has some an intense, I don't know, recoil, if not fear, like around death. But if someone's really in touch with their own death, maybe that means being in touch with their death time in a way. Like, I know there's a moment of death. I'm so in touch with that. And John, you're saying that too, because you had it, right? Like, I know there's a death time for me. It's it's waiting for me. It's there or you know, I've had it already or whatever. And there's, but, it, but to, I don't mean to interrupt, but to, to that comment, like, don't think that there aren't still nights when I go outside and grip the earth and, and like right, scream, right. you know what I mean? Like, no, I, no, I know I, that yeah, I know not, that it's coming and fear it. Yeah. I wouldn't say that everybody's sense of death time is the same. And then there's also the unbornness time. Like what was I before I was born, you know? And then, you know, I'm thinking of this thing that, um, the reason why I'm saying all this, I'm thinking of this thing that this philosopher that I love, Michel Serre, said, uh, like, time is layered in localized space. So we're experiencing all these different sort of flows of time in the space that we're in now, the room where your mother died, or this place in Ireland, or this, you know, place where Caitlin is right now, where it's like, there's the thought time, you know, there's the body time, there's the way my body is unfolding in space over time, there's you know, the pleasure and pain time, because if I'm talking with you guys and I have like a canker sore on the inside of my lip and all I can do is focus on that, this time feels a lot different. And then there's the sort of, you know, um, there's the emotional time and there's the geological time of all the substances around me and all that kind of stuff. And they're all kind of meeting and tangling in this moment right now. And depending on how you react to each layer, you're going to have a completely different experience, each layer of time in your life in that localized space, because there's lots of different ones happening at once. Um, well, but but yeah. wisdom, and I can I can say this knowing I am extremely not there yet, but it seems like wisdom is being able to ride those time waves. Yeah. Like, and just kind of be like, <laughs> yeah. I'm in the vibe and Ride here I am. And yes, ways, and y- yeah. I mean, <laughs> and like, yes, this is like you were saying, John, this is like, I know that I'm alive now and this is my time. And like, are you comfortable with what you've done? 
but it seems to me like the bigger challenge is to, I used to think the biggest challenge was asking yourself, are you comfortable with what you've done? Hmm. And now I think the biggest challenge is saying, I am comfortable with what I've done, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. And like only when you kind of start to let in being comfortable with what you have done with your time on earth, can you start riding the time waves as we've decided to call it? Yeah. But, and and yeah. when you were talking about the canker store, sore and the how canker time store. passes, canker sore. <laughs> That's a new idea. Canker sorus. Um, <laughs> like where I'm at on my journey, and you were talking about like, even earlier you were talking about like breakups that you don't want to think about because they're painful or like situations where we're not comfortable situations that are painful. Um, like where I am at my journey right now, like I will often, if I have a moment where I'm breaking down and I'm sobbing and going through something horrible, there's a point where, and I, I hope this happens for most people. I don't know if it does where I realize like the beauty of being able to feel that sadness and that pain, mm -hmm. because as far as I know, there will come a time when I'm out of body that I won't be able to feel that anymore. I won't be able to feel anything anymore. I won't, you know, people, my favorite color is brown and people are like, that's such a <laughs> like lazy color. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a simple color. And it's a, it's one of the colors that I will never be able to see again once I don't have eyes. And so like, I love it because I know that there's going to come a time when I don't get it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I love that. And I was just sort of thinking like, you know, when I'm, when I'm depressed, you know, it's because in some sense, when I'm the deepest in it, it's because time is completely only one layer of that time is accessible to me. And it, and it tells me that it's always been like that and it will always be like that. Um, but as soon as I start adding in these other layers, like, well, there's a time when you will die. Um, there's a time that's happening on this cosmic scale. There's a time that's happening in my thoughts or if I meditate or whatever, to the extent that I can make transparent, you know, the layers of time to each other in a useful way. And I can do as many of them as I want and go on a crazy DMT meets, you know, Salvia <laughs> white woman trip, or I can just do, you know, two of them to get myself out of depression where I can do one of them or two of them to stop myself from being bored in a lecture, whatever it is, like it becomes this great skill. Um, well, and when you, when someone writes your obituary, when you did the day that you die, the obituary won't be about that one day you're in now. <laughs> you know yeah. the story the story of time that is you is so much vaster and more interesting than you think it is on a very difficult day <laughs> right but it'll just appear as a hyphen between two numbers as well it's <laughs> <laughs> great <laughs> but hey that hyphen that hyphen is is pregnant <laughs> with meaning let me Don't tell break you my hyphen um, I think I, I'm so grateful for this conversation and I know we could go on and on and hopefully we'll all get a chance to be in the same place um, before we die uh, again um, or, uh, you know, sometime soon. So thank you so much, uh, Caitlin and John. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Connor. Thank you, Caitlin. And thanks everybody for listening. 
Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Um, how exciting to bring the two of you together, Chris Donahue and Kaylin Hogan. Hi. Hi. Hey. Good to be here. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to... I'm going to just get right into it and sort of throw something on the table and see what happens. Um, so I was thinking about how, um, you know, the three of us, we all write about, talk about, and think about repression um, and suppression and oppression. But I think I want to talk mostly about repression um, in a way um, and suppression as an extension of it. I... I was wondering where to start with that. And then <laughs> I was thinking, well, I could just ask them, you know, what what was their first sexual experience? I could just ask them, what was the sexual experience they liked? What was the sexual experience they didn't like? And then in my head, I had this like snag that was like, oh, I don't know if I should do that or not. And I thought, aha, see, this is exactly where some of it begins i mean in so much as we can have a starting point where we have this sort of inner kind of snag this inner like re-swallowing of the words before they come out even if it's genuinely something that you want to express and while i realize that what i say and don't say can have lots of culturally conditioned um and politically and economically conditioned um sort of currents that come in and stop me from speaking i also am thinking about where it starts in me and stops in me. And so I thought I would begin there. So um, <laughs> whatever you guys want to do with that, I'll let you, I'll let you go ahead and do it. <laughs> um, very broad, <laughs> very broad. Um, so pull back if I'm taking it, you don't care where the direction goes, right, Connor? No, go for it. Beautiful. So I was having a conversation a couple of days ago um, with a colleague about this because I, the minute you started talking about that, what came up for me was my relationship to social media and how I was talking to my colleague about its use historically for me as a way to really generate ideas. And what was really exciting for me in my use of things like social media was pushing on boundaries, critiquing things that were um, very triggering for people to have challenged or critiqued. And I found so much joy and uh, I felt like I was bringing this authentic part of myself forward. But then I noticed that there was this like shift and it's kind of what I'm obsessed with and have been probably for the entire year, which is somehow this idea of like respectability politics has become profound for me. And I've started to now think about whatever I'm producing or writing I have this sense of how it's going to land and the impact it's going to have, but not necessarily like in a healthy way, right? In a way of anxiety. Um, and I don't know if that was getting some pushback and and this expectation of like, I'm seeing, I'm seeing patients of mine starting to follow me on social media that I work with clinically. Um, I'm also seeing some <clears throat> organizations that I want to work with. And so for the first time in a very long time, I think I'm actually paying attention to this imaginary audience and what I think is expected of me or needed from me. And so for me right now, that repression word is very much tied to my professional identity. In my personal life, with the people I'm friends with and socialize with, I feel like that word doesn't occupy a lot of space or have any energy, but like professionally, it's profound for me right now. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I, I like all I can think of in terms I keep going back to first sexual experience and it is it is a weird thing you are conscious of of what sort of different areas you're operating in, in publicly and and what you say and what you don't um and to sort of <laughs> not to avoid talking about the sex directly but I think the first time I had sex is always um very closely intertwined uh, with the politics of access to emergency contraception, uh, weirdly, because um, the morning after having sex for the first time, I it was not protected and I was panicked about potentially becoming pregnant. And in Ireland at the time, you couldn't access emergency contraception without a prescription. Um, but despite that one of my best friends who was there and um, around on the night and the morning after offered to go to the pharmacy for me anyway and try to plead with the people there to give it to us anyway and um, because otherwise you know you were faced with going to your GP which was usually your family doctor that you've been going to since you were very little and who knew your parents and you know sort of knew everything about you and yeah that talk about re repression and shame being integral um, to that first experience because of that lack of access to emergency contraception. I think I ended up going to the doctor, but it you know meant asking for a lift, questions about why I was going to the doctor, and you know it's just all wrapped up with that from the very beginning um, of not being able to just go to a pharmacy and ask for this. That has obviously changed since, but I think that will always be wrapped up with that first experience, mm. which is strange um but that was Ireland and still is you know we just actually made contraception free for I think it's 17 to 25 year olds now which is an important step um but yeah when I was growing up that was that was not the case so yeah. that is something that sticks in mind that's so so interesting because I was just I was thinking something as Chris was talking and then it I kind of came to life in what you just said, which is like, all right. So with, with Chris's idea of, you know, social media and like the monitoring and the, the way that you would, you know, say something, it's like, in some sense, you must be imagining a future with a certain kind of consequence for you when you're thinking about navigating the social media space, like, oh, if I say this, then this might happen. People might respond in this way. And so you start sort of mapping out a kind of imagined future. And therefore, in some ways, you end up supporting <laughs> that imagined future, even though you decide not to sort of make it happen, right? Like, it's like, oh, if I am imagining a world in which people respond in this way, in this way, in this way, I'm going to talk in this pathway, which can somehow still end up supporting people, you know, responding that way, because I haven't, I haven't activated or provoked a challenge for them to speak in that way. And so then I was thinking about what you were saying, Kayleen, about like, well, you know, we obviously, you know, so what you were saying in, about in Ireland, that there's a, you know, a prescription had to happen. So a certain kind of conversation with a certain person had to take place to get access to this kind of health care. And no other conversation really would do at the time. And that conversation was probably also shameful, you know, in a way for a lot of people. And so the, the ways, the things that we decide to talk about and the ways that we decide to say them and the consequences that we imagine 
you know, obviously they're going to echo and echo and echo into the kind of world we create and form. And so then I'm like, okay, well, so where does the responsibility lie with speaking and imagining what's available, what's going to happen, what kind of world we live in? Um, is it my job to unrepress for everybody? Um, if I don't do that, am I like fucking things up? Should I be <laughs> deliberately provocative or not? I mean, it's all those things are coming up for me as you guys say these things. I like that. And I guess I kind of throw that as a question to Kaylin. I, when I looked at like the, you know, I didn't want to do any research, but I looked at what Connor had said about you. So I guess that's an interesting question. So you talk about misogyny, correct? That's, that's like a, one of the threads that's in the work you do. So what do you, what do you think about that? Cause I know for me, it's almost like an easy answer where like my job as a psychotherapist in my office, I think the responsibility is really clear. Um, that like, at least when I'm in the capacity of therapist, I should use my, it's like the process and the content should match. So as I'm talking to maybe a client about um, eliminating or reducing sex shame, I have to make sure that my presence is a part of that, that undoing. But I guess I think it's really interesting, just like as a, a, a cis woman I, I out in the world, and you're aware of misogyny, and then there's this gatekeeping to have access to something that should be part of like just body autonomy. Do you think you have that responsibility to just socially be dismantling that? Or is that more of like, I guess that's the question. Where do you think the responsibility lies with that? Like my, my professional identity already almost forces some of it. So sometimes it's not so much choice. So how do you make that decision? It's an interesting one. I think there is, a, especially with social media, constant pressure to share trauma, to share traumatic experiences in order for other people to become aware. And I mean, there was a, a murder of a young woman in Ireland recently that sort of sparked, uh, you know, a nationwide sort of sharing of women and girls' testimonies of, you know, physical violence and sexual violence. Was she um, murdered um, by a partner or someone she knew? No, she was actually uh, murdered by a man she didn't know um, okay. while jogging during the day. Um, and that's true. I mean, the majority of murders, you know, sort of femicide is by partners and, and you know, intimate partners and people that women know. And, and that rarely gets covered in the way it should um, or gets the attention it should. But I think, you know, that that prompted a, a wave of these testimonies and men. It was interesting to watch sort of you know, men we knew respond to that and, and be so unaware that that was a daily fear for so many women. I mean, I had a friend who once said to me, and this is years ago, that, you know, he didn't understand why, you know, he should be expected to walk home with a female friend and didn't really understand the daily kind of fear that women go through. Um, but I think what's interesting as well in, in sharing, I, I don't think, you know, that there is a pressure again to share those experiences and the burden can often be on women and girls to share those really difficult experiences. And sometimes there's a consideration that that's cathartic always. And it's not, it can be, it can be re-traumatizing for people often having worked a lot with survivors of institutional violence and um, abuse it's often re-traumatizing really to share those testimonies, even if they are a catalyst to change. Um, but what I, I think is actually interesting is the effect of misogyny on men and, and patriarchy on men, which is often not talked about as much. Um, that was something with the institutions, you know, 
uh, people often ask me, what about the blame of the fathers? Where were the fathers of children who were taken from unmarried mothers and put in religious institutions? Um, and yet there were many cases of fathers who actually tried to get their children back from these religious institutions or who were shunned by their communities um, and who, you know, who were denied their you know, right to parenthood as well because of that systemic misogyny and patriarchy. Um, and even going back to experiences of sex, like I remember partners in the past when I was young, sort of being surprised that I wanted to do certain things and imagining that women wouldn't, you know, mm. sort of be interested in, you know, sort of exploring sexually or certain, you know, certain, um, you know, experiences. Uh, and that, I think, again, is that that misogyny at work. Um, and so I think when we're talking about opening up a conversation for men and, and young men particularly around sex and around consent you know it is so important that they realize the effect that misogyny and, and sort of systemic misogyny has on them as well that it's um something for them to grapple with and deal with not just to you know sort of rescue women and girls from this system but to understand how that system impacts them as well yeah um there's so much to say so I'm just going to say a lot and then you guys just take on whatever part of what I'm going to say that you want like when I was thinking about Chris this interview he gave on a tv show where Rick's talking about um with another uh, uh another relationship therapist I don't know if she was a sex therapist or what but um he was talking about how often women have orgasms when they masturbate versus when they have sex and the host of the show is very kind of like jokey funny person you know she was just like okay well like guys you just got to know how to do it and chris was like i yeah like that's great but like also women like you need to tell your partner what to do or they're not going to know and and the the co-host was like what like I don't, I feel like a man would respond horribly to that. And like, it is true that like men can respond horribly to that. But like, they were like, what would you say if your partner said that to you, Chris? And Chris was like, I say, thank you, you know, because I want to actually know how to like, so I was thinking about, as you were saying that, Caitlin, the sort of interlocking, um, the, the ways that like certain kinds of silence, silencing and structures of repression like make everybody suffer like that's just one sexual experience where like the guy has no idea how to like do what he's doing when he's having sex with a woman and the woman has no idea of how to say it and like no one's willing to talk to each other so like you know it doesn't actually go well really for anybody then i was thinking about um you know the the anti-gay violence that happened here um <laughs> And I was thinking about how, like, the way people have talked about it in Ireland, like, so whenever, I mean, I can give specific examples, but I'd rather not single any gay men out for this. But, like, whenever a gay man is attacked here in Ireland, or, like, a queer person is attacked, there's usually, like, this media flurry around, like, where you see these articles that are, like, so, uh, or, or tweets or whatever from journalists that are like, let us know as an LGBT person, do you feel safe? Do you feel safe walking down the street? Like, have you been bullied? Have you experienced this? Have you experienced that? And so suddenly all this attention comes into like, tell me how scared you are. Tell me how fucked up you are. Tell me like how, um, 
how you are frightened walking down the street all the time. And I think like, of course, it's important to be able to talk about some of that, but like, as if, you know, one, that's not just sort of an everyday condition of life for people who um, experience, you know, the threat of violence in one way or another, but two, like, nothing is ever, no attention is really ever given to the constant daily survival tactics and strategies. And I don't even like the word survival, but like the, the everyday tactics and strategies of just happiness and like loving your life and living your life in in spite of all this. So let me say one more thing and then I'll shut up and let you guys take it away. Like I was, I, we, we talked about this on the show a long time ago, back at my friend, Sarah Maria Griffin on the show. And she was talking about how, you know, she was sitting in a pub and this guy like grabbed her by the neck and she was like, and Connor was just so calm. Like it didn't bother me. Like, and all my friends were like, what the fuck? Like that was so fucked up. And she was like, whatever. She's like, that guy was a dick. And I was like, isn't it so fascinating that you were able to do that? And I've had experiences like that too, where something might've seen sexually threatening or threatening in a violent way. And I remained calm. Nobody ever asked how we did that. Nobody ever asked like, why should I have been able to be okay in those moments? Um, as like part of the overall way of talking to people who experience violence, because it, it often gets funneled into how are you damaged? Not like, how are you able to get through that experience in a healthy way in which you could sort of walk away with it, walk away from it without any apparent damage or trauma. And how can we lend that kind of communication to others? You know, that was a lot. <laughs> Somehow when we started talking about the sex piece first, um, <clears throat> So when Kaylin was talking and, and kind of what you kind of said first about um, silence and what silence generates, sorry, my screen's making wild sounds. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of the men I work with clinically, um, they definitely will often carry that pressure that like a real man or a real straight man <clears throat> has this skill set and, and understands and knows how to do these things. And it's so ridden in shame and anxiety. Because when I recommend something like, hey, why don't you ask your partner what maybe they're interested in? There's often a lot of fear and anxiety of that being somehow a reduction of their masculinity, right? So it's like that theme of trying to always align with gender <clears throat> gender labels and the expectations around it. And my work is just always about trying to dismantle all of that, right? Like I see these programs about how to reconnect with your feminine and your masculinity. And I think that's just like a maintenance of the problem. And those aren't even real categories, right? There's so much diversity within all of those anyway. People live in between outside of and we have more than two genders. But sadly, <laughs> I think sometimes the issue gets in the way of the solution itself in that a lot of the men I work with um, I have to help them understand what's in it for them to get them to be motivated to maybe explore some of these concepts. And so, yeah, I think it's a powerful statement when we talk about how patriarchy is also toxic for men. And it's a really hard thing to say as a man sometimes, understanding that as painful as hard as it is on me, it's still something that I benefit from in a way that, you know, people that aren't male identified don't. But all that to say, I think the most painful part of it that I see in my practice around sex for men is that they really do see sex as performance and they really do do go into it focused on outcome and this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way. And one of the most profound things that I often see when I'm in my office is all, or even at a conference when I'm speaking to men, I'll stand up and I'll say, look at my entire body. 
like my entire body, this whole geography is sexual and is my sexuality and has the capacity of engaging and bringing, you know, joy, pleasure, connection, sex. But we shrink it all down to this one little area in the crotch and think about how much that is a reduction of just, I mean, it's body shame, it's sex shame, it's pleasure avoidance and pleasure phobia. And so I just talk about how much there's a missed opportunity in connecting to self and connecting to sex. And then it gets worse when I'll say to a male, tell me what makes you feel sexy. And that's always such a powerful moment because the females I work with can tell me what they need to do or wear, um, listen to, put on, what their routine might be to really make themselves feel desirous for themselves, for others. Men have no sense of that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's like there's a distancing from partner's pleasure. There's also distancing from their own pleasure and they can't even answer these words. And I give them these assignments to kind of push in those boundaries. So I, I start there. Um, and I don't even remember how, how I got on this specific topic. Um, we were talking about performance <laughs> and pleasure because now I'm still thinking about the assault stuff. Um, but oh, patriarchy harming more than just, mm-hmm. yeah. So what am I saying? I'm saying that I think men have to step into the work themselves to really appreciate what the work is and then to have a willingness to do that and then be reminded of that generalized positive outcome that it has. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That was bottom yeah. there. <laughs> I mean, I think those conversations are so interesting and the work you're doing, Chris is so important in, in helping men actually speak about this and, and explore their own sexuality. And I, it is sad, the expectations that we have that are sort of founded in stereotypes of gender that, that silence us in, in, in communicating with each other to, to achieve more pleasure in our relationships and to enjoy sex more. And, um, I think, you know, absolutely it's this expectation that men have to perform and can't ask what a woman would want because that would be, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of chip to their ego or, you know, that would be showing some vulnerability and women equally, um, equally feel afraid to ask you know, for what they want or to explore their own pleasure, their own bodies. Um, absolutely, when it comes to, you know, masturbation, um, I think if, uh, you know, a, a young woman doesn't know or, you know, any age of woman doesn't know how or doesn't feel comfortable or confident to explore her own body and know what gives her pleasure, I think it is very difficult for a partner then to, you know, to figure that out for her. Um you know, there, there needs to be communication, but if you don't know what you want and, and sort of to be able in the middle of that to say, okay, that's working, stick with that. <laughs> like, I know I'm going to get there if we keep going in this way. I, you know, it can be quite elusive. It's, it's not always going to work. So, um, and I think it comes to feeling sort of free to, to get to know our own bodies. I think there, you know, men often, don't explore different aspects of pleasure when you're talking about you know my whole body is you know a sexual being it's not just you know genitals um but you know aspects of pleasure that men uh heterosexual you know cis men haven't explored because they are afraid you know that they might be seen as gay for trying something or you know there's still that stigma and there's still men who are afraid to explore their own bodies and their own pleasure in that way because of those sort of very rigid expectations of gender and sexuality. Um, 
but equally women, you know, and I think it all comes down to education, actually knowing our bodies. Um, there's a story uh, when it comes back to sort of early experiences and just silly things. I mean, I remember going to the doctor once um, convinced that I was I was dying. I was convinced I had a tumor um, in, in a very intimate place. And I had, you know, <laughs> whatever, I had felt something and I was really afraid and convinced that this was something terrible. Went to the doctor and it turned out it was my cervix. And I just had no idea what my cervix was. <laughs> I mean, something that basic, just not knowing our own anatomy, not knowing what makes up our bodies and how we're meant to explore them sexually and communicate anything when we don't have that basic education. So, and, you know, and it's and it's wild to people because I will literally like when I, <clears throat> man, I brought this up at a. Uh, youth sex education conference, which I'm not an ideal candidate to speak at because I say things that aren't necessarily going to be what the uh, people in the audience want to hear. We were talking about pregnancy and I would, well, whatever, I won't get on that story, but I was recommending anal. Anal doesn't lead to pregnancy. We should be talking more about anal, but we're not ready to talk about anal with teens. But what's interesting to me is when I prescribe sexual experience how there's so much stigma attached to casual sex and hookup culture. And I do think that that's a necessary part of the solution is when we have sex with someone, they're, they're up against our limits, we're up against their limits. And then we kind of do like whatever's left over. And so I think there is something really important and valuable in promoting in a conscious uh, consent-based compassionate way, sexual exploration and experience because the clients I work with that have had more sexual partners tend to be faring far better with a lot of the things we're talking about. Uh, Imagine they've had more positive experiences, which is a big expectation. Um, But the ones that have had very limited sexual experience tend to fall into this problem. And so it's a really clunky thing as a mental health professional to say, I think teenagers should be having a lot of relational and sexual experiences to really learn about all the things we're talking about and to really be challenged and have different people kind of challenge them. But I think there's something really necessary and important about that. Um, So I'd love to talk more about that. And then just also as someone who's had sex with multiple genders, it's quite profound for me where if I'm entering a romantic or sexual space with a guy, there's um, often not a lot of um, expectations And it's a lot of negotiation and a lot of like confidence in some of that negotiation. We're stepping into like a hetero frame. I felt like a weird paralyzed wall that I was hitting where there was like one role for me to play. And that's what was expected to be played. And I remember it had been a while, but I was flirting with a girl at a party and I could just feel myself based on some of what she was saying and doing, being like forced into this role that I just wasn't familiar with. And I don't even know what I'm saying and saying that other than that dichotomy was so profound. So maybe I'm challenging heterocentricity as just so toxic because it just doesn't allow room for that like negotiation at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're just reminding me of my friend a long time ago, like, I don't know, it was like 10 or 15 years ago. And she was sort of talking about the guy she was dating and she's like, yeah, I don't think I can be with him anymore. And I was like, why? She's like, he just wants to come on my face all the time and it's so degrading. And I'm like, I mean, it was like completely incomprehensible to me that someone wouldn't enjoy <laughs> the experience of de- the degradation of having someone come on your face. And I realized that so much of that was like wrapped up in, you know, certain kinds of, you know, gender politics history. Um, 
you know, and as well as, you know, really presently felt stuff. But, you know, I'm thinking about it when you're talking about talking to youth and everything and just uh, like there's this weird um gosh how am I even gonna how am I even gonna say this like I'm thinking about so there's a book by Judith Levine called Harmful to Minors which is Mm. just a Mm. great book about like you know how silence around sex and sex shaming and regulations around sex um, affect like teenagers basically. And, um, one of the things she says is like, it's such a, it's such a profound, like moment. It's so she just casually drops it in. It's just one sentence in the whole book, but she's like, you know, we should stop, you know, um, what we, we should stop thinking that boys, teenage boys have nothing to offer the landscape of sex. Like actually their enthusiasm about sex is something that's really important for us to learn from. Mm -hmm. And then she just moves on. And I remember, I mean, I read this like however many years ago and I was like, whoa, that's a really intense statement coming from her where it's like the, like the sexual, like the sexualized landscape, the, the, the idea that everything is sort of permeated and like kind of glowing with you know, sexual potential that I think is expressed in speaking by a lot of teenage boys and definitely a lot of men as you get older as well. Like that's often seen as like a horrible thing, but I I think actually it creates the opportunity for conversation. It's just that the, the, the perception is dead ended into a certain way of speaking, but the perception itself is not bad. And I think that the way that we handle the the speaking and the words around it gets sort of confused with oh yeah you shouldn't see things that way you shouldn't have that kind of enthusiasm and i think that that's seems damaging to everybody too and also i think the assumption that young women aren't as enthusiastic right. don't have the enthusiasm or aren't wanking as much you know yeah. uh young women and girls you know self-pleasuring and you know wanking just it's never talked about it's always a running joke in school among young lads and it's easily talked about um but it's just still or when I was growing up there was such a silence around women you know young women enjoying their own bodies um so yeah I think I think young men's enthusiasm for sex or fixation on sex is seen as a threat because of you know this social pressure to maintain or presume the innocence of young women and that you know sexual interest is seen as a threat against you know protecting the purity of young women and if we start to break down and um, that social dynamic and those repressions of female sexual sexuality then maybe young men are will be more free to explore that without the, the shame and stigma as well if they if they can get over the initial fear, because I see I see some of that fear in the men I work with upon seeing females or their female partner as a truly autonomous sexual being. But what's really interesting, and this is like shocking to people, I don't I, I do understand why is when I when I, I was ta- I don't know I guess I was on, I was on a podcast or something talking about this and they were so floored. But it's the women coming into my practice that are requesting. Uh, trying more creative, diverse sexual things. And that was such a beautiful thing to see because I thought, wow, maybe there's actually some healing and transformation taking place culturally that they're so empowered and confident enough to say, I'm going to push back on all that and I want to try these things. But it's the women 
mm-hmm. you know, that are really asking their partners for some different things, including some more open styles and, and kind of um, the exploration of some of their fantasies. But it's the, but I see a lot of anxiety in the men. Instead of the excitement, some might think that they have upon hearing that their girlfriend or wife is as interested right. as maybe they are and some stuff. There's a lot of fear, and of course, we can unpack what that is, and we know what that's about. But yes, I'm I'm, I'm happy to see the women kind of shifting in that way. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I wonder actually maybe this can get into some of what you've done your journalistic work on, Kaylin, because I was thinking, like some of that like some of these dynamics have a certain place in the history of heterosexuality and politics, I think, in the sense that like this idea of like men are always horny and women hold the virtue. Like that was a, a, that was a power move by women that would like worked, you know, um, by feminists that kind of worked in, um, in like the 18th, 18th into 19th century, there's a great book called The Origins of Sex that's all about that. And part of it was just the way that people were regu- way that women were regulated by the state and the church. It was like, okay, but maybe we can sort of seize power here by being like, we grant, you know, like we're the ones that hold the virtue around sexuality and sex, and we will grant you the permission to, you know, but you're, you're sort of beasts when it comes to your sexuality. <laughs> And I think, you know, those dynamics are dynamics that we're still suffering from. Now, obviously, that's not a universal dynamic. It didn't happen everywhere. Like it didn't happen, you know, in Ireland the same way it happened in the U.S. The same way it happened in the U.K. But it's like, I do think that we're still dancing with some of that. So when Chris, when you say, oh, well, when women come in and they're asking for diversity and that might express a kind of healing, it might be that like, some women are saying, I do feel that actually, like if I, if I sort of draw it out in a historical way, I'm like, maybe some women have gotten beyond that sense of, well, this is where my power lies that was laid down in like <laughs> the 18th and 19th century. I'm like, okay, like I've got my power here. So now I can start, you know, doing something else. Now I can expand on what's available to me. I mean, it might be, a, might be a signal of that in a way. I think it's also an economic reality too. I mean, I think that purity in the way you're talking about using your purity or your chastity as almost, you know, something to barter with and something to use to gain power or standing in society and almost like a resource um, that women learn to sort of wield um, as, you know, we've come to gain economic rights or some, you know, and the ability to support ourselves economically, we're not relying on that. We're not relying on marriage or, you know, on bartering our purity and um, to gain security, to gain economic security or social security. So obviously that change has happened. And I think that's allowing women to to expand and, and, and open up and speak about um, what they want sexually and, and to enjoy their sexuality rather it being something that, you know, they have to sort of um, use uh, to achieve certain things. But I think we still see the stigma of that, of, of women using their own body or autonomy to achieve what they want um, in the discrimination we see um, against sex workers and, you know, women, including young women who describe 
um, you know, using sex work to, you know, uh, or enjoying sex work as a way to, you know, attain um, economic security um, and to raise their families and to, um, you know, enjoying that autonomy over their own bodies. Um, and there's still a huge stigma around that. There's still, I think, what we see as a modern, you know, quote unquote, rescue movement that um, I would have written about in, in the context of the religious institutions here in Ireland, which mm-hmm. literally criminalized female sexuality and expressions of it outside the confines of what, you know, of doctrine and law of what the church said was acceptable. Um, even married women here when they gave birth had to be churched to sort of be cleansed of the sin of, of clearly having sex. And there were institutions set up solely for young girls who were quote unquote sexually active and who you know had known to have a a sexual experience and they were sort of locked up in a specific institution to stop them and infecting or sort of being contagious around other innocent girls so female sexuality has been sort of criminalized and policed and um, girls and women literally institutionalized and imprisoned because of any expression of it Um, but I think there's still that stigma and these modern rescue movements um, of a woman using her own body to attain what she wants. And I, um, I see, and- I see that still in existence in my field with like the sex addiction label, where I still see that used as a way to shame and police those exact individuals, just in a different context now. Yeah, yeah, and I was thinking about when you were saying sex workers, like the whole way, like. in the UK, especially where, you know, sex work is much less um, as as a sort of legal thing, like much less risky for sex workers than it is is in the US. Well, yeah, I mean, in the US, like you go, if you're caught as a sex worker, you can go to jail, right? Like, and Mm -hmm. in the UK, like, sure, that can happen. But like, there's different kinds of laws where it's like, clients are criminalized, like there's a Nordic model in Northern Ireland. I mean, the horrible like it brings all other kinds of harms but i'm just saying as far as it goes sort of in the in the legal system but in the uk it's like the uh, <laughs> there was and uh, some of the loudest voices in the sex workers rights movement i mean god bless them but a lot of it was like no one does this because they want to no one does this for sexual reasons this is purely about labor and of course, you'd expect that from, you know, <laughs> from England in, in a lot of ways because of the sort of mannered class respectability politics there. But I do think that, like, in Ireland, you see how that plays out completely differently. Well, not for everybody, but for a lot of people because of the presence of the church and the presence of a sexually and obviously sexually repressive, um, you know, mechanism where it's like, women aren't even allowed to, well, I mean, a lot of people in Ireland aren't allowed to talk about sex or sexuality, but women in a very particular way aren't allowed to talk about sex or sexuality either. And so then you see like these different levels of shaming and silencing that happen even within the framework of people who are supposed to be allies. It's so fascinating and horrible, but really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reporting on on sex work in the States and these sort of, uh, they call them anti-prostitution courts that were being set up in New York um, through these sort of new anti-trafficking initiatives and 
sort of um, a young woman who was made to go to one of them and because she had been arrested and, and put in jail for the night and you know really violent she had been set up by by the cops it was a very violent experience for her very frightening um, and traumatic and she had to stand up in court and say she was a victim of trafficking in order to not get a criminal charge, even though that's not how she, you know, she saw herself as a sex worker. She was um, confident in the work she was doing. She was doing it consensually. It was the work she wanted to do. Um, and she took pride in, in what she was doing. Um, and yet she was forced by the law to stand up and present herself as a victim of trafficking or be criminalized and potentially sentenced. Um, so it's such a strange dynamic of, of again, shaming and, and sort of, you know, um, putting someone up on this, you know, sort of stage and getting them to um, pretend that it's something that they they feel, you know, they've been a victim of, even though the actual, the criminalization, the policies of criminalization is what they feel most victimized by and, and the system of criminalization. <laughs> right, and that, I mean, that reminds me of the story that Chris told me, which I like, I will never forget where because i mean the laws around sex everywhere are bonkers and the ways that they play out in the u.s are like a particular kind of like you know crazed i think where chris was telling me about someone who had pulled his car over to a parking lot to masturbate in his car it was an empty parking lot he was far away but like there was a building like a significant distance from the parking lot and someone like in the building, like a few floors up could see into the car and then called the police and the guy was arrested and then put on the sex offender registry. Right. And I do think if, if we talked about that, say on social media, I don't think anyone would be surprised to see people being like, well, that, that pedo, that groomer, like that person who non-consensually was spotted by this woman, like masturbating, all these kinds of things would show up. And so like the, the, the room for actually even making a, a statement about sexuality is so that where you affirm the right to sexual pleasure is so constrained. And I think there tends to be this like bizarre, and I don't even know where it came from, like attitude that somehow the sexual revolution happened and, and never happened, <laughs> that that sexual liberation happened and never happened. And that like, we're now in this sort of pornified, like crazy over-sexualized like world, but like actually like the, it, it seems to be becoming more and more narrow and what could be expressed and said, I'm not, there are of course some gains and some advances and we've talked about some of those, but I mean, I think as an overall sort of political, um, you know, like mood, it's becoming much worse in a lot of ways. I remember, Connor, I think we were doing the Utopia event where you got people to talk about what they'd like in a Utopia. And one of those things, one of your ideas about a Utopia was somewhere where you could have sex anywhere in public and it would be, <laughs> it would be um, embraced. Uh, and there's a, actually a great um, Irish artist called Emer Walsh. Um, they produced this this written work called The Land for the People and, and um, some really interesting work around the housing crisis. 
and sort of where can we have sex you know if we don't have secure places to live and um, you know if, if if there's this sort of crisis of displacement and you know where can people have sex and advocating for you know the right to public sex as well um but chris that like what impact does that have on someone i mean <laughs> i mean it, to, to work with someone through that like that's very complex uh, the impact. Yeah, there's a period in my career when I was uh, first working with a lot of sex addiction stuff. I was working at a sex addiction treatment center, and now my work is in complete reaction to that and everything I did there. But <clears throat> traumatic. I mean, I mean, just because if nothing else, just carrying that label and and having to register as such um, confusion and trauma because this individual again was in no means by no means in, in intending to involve or incorporate anyone else into that moment. Um, it's, it's kind of like, and then there's also that other piece, which is what we've kind of been talking about, which is everyone has some level of sexual trauma to work through based on their gender training, their sexual orientation training, whatever it is. And then this individual has to go back and find a way to incorporate that, which has now just also ruined his life. And that's always what's so fascinating is like something that, to someone had had so much joy and so much pleasure and was an act of self-soothing now has been weaponized. And how do we return to pleasure with that? I don't even remember what really wound up happening in our work. That was, that was a long time ago, right? That was like over a decade ago, mm-hmm. but what that's really become is also a warning to people. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like this, that, that the world isn't as safe as you think it is in some ways to be really a lot more thoughtful about that, but then it's also galvanized the work we do. I mean, Connor, <clears throat> One of the most interesting things you ever said to me, we never even fully flushed it out, is this idea of like visual consent versus touch consent. Mm-hmm. And you were always a big proponent of there needing to be a differentiation between the two yeah. because the damage is different. And this is really a powerful way to intersect with that conversation. <laughs> it's so funny. Right? It's like, yeah, I mean, talk about long ago. The, the first time that ever came up was when I lived in San Francisco. And some, you know, the, like everybody had gay sex in like the, the steam room at the gay gym that I went to, you know, every, yeah. and then like one day some drag queen um, who someone was known as a drag queen. Um, obviously he wasn't in drag when he was in the locker room, went and complained to the, you know, and got complained at the desk and got people thrown out. And I was like, you just like, where's drag? What is the tradition of drag? Where's that coming from? And like, this was someone who in drag would go up and make all these like racist, misogynist, you know, like, uh, like all these kinds of jokes that like drag queens did and still often make when they're performing. And I was thinking like, why are you doing this? And that was when I thought like, what is the idea? Like, oh, I didn't consent to see this, you know, and this comes up again and again. And the idea that somehow, um, I, I mean, it's obvious that like saying that consent to see, I didn't consent to see this is the same as I didn't consent to be touched in this way. That's what people use against trans people in bathrooms. That's what people use against seeing interracial couples or gay people holding hands right. or whatever. It's always leveled against marginalized people. And so somehow this has been picked up as a progressive talking point. And I mean, it's, it it's not we can talk about something being hurtful to someone without talking about it as being violating in the same way as being sexually assaulted and i don't understand why like or i do understand like there you know when we talk about rape culture like a a, a horrible like sort of knock on effect of talking about rape culture is that 
we don't know how to talk about any sense of hurt without elevating it to the status of rape and assault, <laughs> which is also crazy, you know? And so obviously we need to be able to distinguish between these things because it's not helpful to solving any problems or to helping people who have been hurt or, you know, in the worst cases, people who have been deeply traumatized um, and, you know, and helping people who have, you know, crossed these lines in one way or another, like to understand what they did wrong or how to, you know, work with them on it. That's what, going back to what Chris was talking about, respectability politics and what you were saying, Connor, about um, sort of violence and assault and the way that we individually deal with that. And I think th- what intersects the two is the shutting down of sort of often community-led solutions to violence, uh, particularly marginalized communities and their own solutions um, to protect against violence, including violence from the state and, and it's a sort of systemic violence and, and the way that those are being sort of, you know, broken down, you know, thinking about, I think it was Backpage and the way that, you know, um, sex workers trying to advertise online, you know, because it was safer, because it was a better way to do so, um, you know, was shut down because people said, well, you know, kind of morality police going in and saying, oh, well, this is a place where people advertise themselves and we need to rescue people from this, even though that was um, a sort of platform, a way that people were using to, to create um, a safer space. Um, and also, you know, with the the attacks in in Sligo and Ireland, um, you know, um, oh, against yeah. men who were on Grinder, um, and this you know this sort of worry over Grinder as a platform being a dangerous platform, and really you know like as I think we talked about before, people go on Grinder because they're worried about outside violence, and this has become a platform where actually they can feel safer. And um, and you know I thought that was a really interesting thing that um, Connor you spoke about before, um, how how that morality police that respectability politics is coming in and judging and shutting down, um, you know sort of systems that communities have actually set up for themselves to 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 feel safer. Yeah, yeah. Just so Chris knows about that situation, um, there was someone in Sligo who was killing gay men and mutilating them. Um, and one, wh- one of the craziest things about that was that it was framed in terms of homophobia. Now, I do not doubt that there was homophobia involved, but like, uh, do we want to, it's like when someone wrote the article about Charles Manson after he died, it was like what other, what people's, what people aren't talking about is that Charles Manson was racist. You know, I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm sure he was racist, but like, as if, you know, like this, you know, this slavering serial killer of gay men was acting out of just the simple condition of homophobia. There was something else going on. And I thought, you know, pulling homophobia and uh, into this and like just naming it that is this way of like actually not really seeing how homophobia is or how it works. And it's like an unuseful distraction. And then so people started talking about, well, we need hate crime laws. Like as if this person like sharpening the knives, getting ready to like mutilate someone who comes over is going to be like, oh, you know what? My sentence might be higher. You know, I mean, it's not <laughs> not going to do anything. But then what Caitlin's talking about is then there were all these articles where like how to keep yourself safe on Grinder, be safe on Grinder, And I was just like, 
What like the grinder is safe, like compared to all like, you know, what's not safe is like holding your hand, like walking down the street at night by the fucking canal in Dublin. Like, stop pretending that like the space that we have is not the safe space. Like the space of the world is the thing that's actually fucking dangerous. And so like telling people how to be safe on grinder is exactly wrong. And so then it's like, again, always the designation of sex and sexual spaces as the site of danger rather than all the forces that inform or surround or even enclose, you know, or encroach on those spaces. Yeah. And and going back to sex education, actually, before we were chatting, I was looking up this story that I remembered about um, education, uh, an education booklet that was used in Irish schools up in recent years. It was only just removed um, as teaching material. And it asked teenage students to discuss statements such as all gays molest children. This is a direct quote that was within the educational um, booklet or girls who don't wear makeup are lesbian and all gays are HIV positive. This was in teaching material used in Irish schools. So if we're going to talk about grinder as the problem, like <laughs> we need to to think about what we're ch- teaching our children. You know, um, yeah. First. Have you ever thought about the fact that a gay man could come into your house and kill your entire family? Well, you shouldn't, kids, because that doesn't happen. You know, <laughs> it's just crazy the framing. Yeah, that, but that's also, I mean, yes, but. That's probably as a, when I'm working in my true capacity as a sex therapist, I think that's literally all I do is sex education. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's, that's really all it is. Yeah. It's so needed. And I mean, we just, it was in, I remember under lockdown doing sort of um, events with fem socks, like feminist societies in around Ireland and young people telling me that they still weren't getting any sexual education in schools. Um, and, you know, young women as well who'd been, you know, suffered um, online sexual abuse, you know, uh, harassment, um, their their intimate images used um, against them. And actually this coming up and being known and teachers shaming them because of it. So, you know, not only a lack of sex education, but, uh, you know, stigmatizing um, young people in school who sort of speak about their rights and speak about sex. And um, I mean, I found out what sex was from the dictionary and my parents said that there was actually a talk about removing dictionaries from the classroom when we were children because we might look up the word, word sex, which is what we ended up doing. But I mean, <laughs> rather than actually educate us and teach us what sex was, because clearly we were there was a curiosity there that they were worried about. No, they, they actually discussed removing the dictionaries from our classroom because of it so you know I mean around 90% of our primary schools are still um connected to the church here in Ireland so you know we talk about that end to a theocracy but there's still so much um religious influence over our schools and I know Chris in the states that's you know that's an ongoing war being waged by the religious right oh yeah and I just and 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 to make it all worse on top of that is even people in my field who are supposed to be part of the solution I traditionally go to nine or 12 cities in non-COVID times to train doctors, nurses, therapists, body workers in sex and sexuality. And I shake my head every single time because I'm like, even this group, right? The group that's supposed to be more radical, more sex positive, body positive, feminist, empowered, not, not at all. And, and pathologize a lot of what we're talking about. So I don't even know where the solution actually st- 
you know, starts to really build, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. And I'm just remembering my therapist who like, when I told him I wanted to be in porn, he was like, well, that's just a terrible idea. You're just going to re-evoke all your sexual trauma. And I was like, it was like actually the healthiest thing I ever did for my sexual, yeah. my sexual life, you know, like, and I learned so much and I was so, and I'm so able to offer to others, like from navigating that space, it was challenging and it was difficult, but so is all sexuality and all like sexual, you know, because of how unilluminated it is by, you know, uh, the way we run our sort of political and even cultural conversations about it. Yeah. And, and the communication that can be necessitated from a transaction. Like I remember, you know, that young woman who, you know, was a sex worker talking about having these conversations around what the boundaries were and, and what she was willing to do and how, you know, that sex would happen and a level of communication that she wouldn't have ever had in a, you know, a usual intimate um, experience. Um, so that yeah. necessitation here, yeah, communication. Well, yeah, I mean, Chris and I, I mean, Chris and I have been like good friends for a really long time, but whether or not we were, he probably would have still, he has a chapter in one of his books called Sex Workers Will Save Us. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I mean, I think that that's, you know, like it, there's so much to learn from people that actually have like sort of understood boundaries by a kind of not default, but like, you know, a, a clear communication ahead of the sexual experience. Yeah. Listen, I want to talk with you both together in this way for two more hours, but um, let's uh, actually longer than that, but <laughs> let's, let's um, all chat again sometime. I'm just so thankful for everything I've learned from you in this conversation, but of course, throughout life, um, Chris Donahue and Kaylin Hogan, thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody. Bye now.